Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. We've been studying through the Old Testament from Genesis, actually, to, to this point in Isaiah. And we're in the 44th chapter of Isaiah, and the first section of this 44th chapter, we had assurance of great blessings. That was verses 1 through 8. And the second section is where we left off. We were in verses 9 through 20. And in this section of Isaiah, we find that Isaiah is exposing the folly of idol makers and also those that worship idols in verses 9 through 20. We got down to about verse 15 and 16. But let me go back and recap the whole thing for you, if you will, and we'll try to hurry along and get down to verse 18, where really basically we should uh, take up. But let's take the whole section and get our minds back on it. So if you look at verse 9, Isaiah 44, verse 9, it says, They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things or desirable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed, or they may be confounded and confused. Who hath formed a god or molten great or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? In other words, who would do such a thing is to make an image that is profitable for nothing. He says, Behold, verse eleven, all his fellows shall be ashamed. And the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. Then he tells the whole proceeding, beginning with verse 12, of how idols are made and who is involved, the peace people and the persons employed. He says in verse 12, the smith, and verse 13, the carpenter, if you'll notice. If you have your Bibles open, look, look straight at the Scripture. It says, The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals, and fashioneth it with hammers, and worketh it with strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water, and is faint. He gets so interested in his work of making an idol that he fails to drink or eat. Can you imagine a man that's making a molten image and making an idol to be worshipped that would be so concerned about it that he would forget to eat and drink and he would be hungry and thirsty? And if that is true, and it is true, how much more for you and I who serve the living and true God, how, how great a sin it is for us to be so involved in other things that we fail to worship God. You know, I can understand becoming hungry or thirsty but because I'm reading the Bible and studying the Word of God and learning more about God. And that's the kind of a fast that God would, would desire. Have you ever been, you've been to, I'm sure, many of you, to all-day revival meetings or uh, a preacher's fellowship to where they, you'd hear preaching throughout the day and sometimes they would be late, like usually preachers are. And uh, they would preach through the noon hour, and it'd be about one o'clock, and you you still wouldn't be hungry. We know a lot of people would be, but others would not be hungry. They just brother Walker's laughing, <laughs> but but uh, you know you could be filled. You could be filled with the Word of God, and you know you'd never know that you were missing a meal, or at least late for a meal. And those kind of times are really a blessing. But these, these men were so in, involved in their idol-making that they forgot got to eat. And yea, his, 
He is hungry and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water in his faint. Verse 13 says, The carpenter stretcheth out his rule. He marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes. And he marketh it out with, uh, with a compass. And maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. So he makes the idol in the form of a man. You know, it's a poor, weak, dying creature that he puts up as an idol. Instead of an angelic being or a heavenly creature, he makes it in the form of a man. And man is doomed to uh, death because of sin. And he shows his weakness. In fact, there are many scriptures in the Psalms that have a word that means uh, I-S-H and I-S-H-A. There are two words, male and female. And it indicates that man is weak. It indicates the weakness of man. So we find that here, he's making an idol in the figure of a man. And then in verse 14, it says, He heweth him down cedars, and taketh cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Of all the trees that he takes, he can do everything but nourish it with the rain, and only God can do that. So he has these trees to use to uh, form and fashion an idol out of, and yet... Only God can give it life, and only God can uh, uh, nourish it and make it grow, because the rain doesn't come from his hands, it comes from God's hands. Then shall it be for man to burn. Now look, this tree. It shall be for man to burn. For he will take thereof and warm himself, yea, he kindleth it, and baketh bread, yea, he maketh a God and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image, and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire... With part thereof he eateth flesh, he roasteth roast, and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself, and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. Can you imagine a man making an idol out of something that uh, is, some of it's only good for nothing but fuel? to cook, to make a fire, to cook his food, to make the roast and the bread so he can eat. You know, if you're going to make an idol, make it out of something more durable than wood. That'll burn up pretty quick. But in, it's showing the folly of man making idols, the foolishness, and of those that worship idols. And verse 17 says, he prays to it, he worships it, he prays to it, and says, Deliver me, for thou art my God. He calls it his God. Now, we know that we have someone greater than all the idols that man can make. And all the idols of man are vanity. In verse 18, it shows that man is like the idol. In other words, the idols are unable to know anything or discern anything. And they're like the people that worship them. They don't know very much either, do they? Look at verse 18. Now, this is where we basically left off. They have not known nor understood, for he has shut their eyes that they cannot see and their hearts that they cannot understand. Now, then, you, you know that the idol that is made cannot see or know anything, and people that worship them are just as blind and just as much of an uh, ineffective and do not know and cannot discern as those that are the idols themselves that are made. 
In other words, the idols are unable to know anything or discern anything, and like the people who worship them, their discernment is sure a very nil, isn't it? Now look at verse 19. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding, to say, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it, and shall... And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? In other words, what he's saying in verse 19 is, how foolish a man would be to take the things that he has to have for his necessities of life, to notice what is uh, said, I've burned part of it in the fire, I've baked bread on the coals, roasted flesh and eaten it, and shall I make the residue thereof for an abomination? An abomination? That's the question. Shall I do this out of the uh, out of the rest of it? And shall, shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? These are good questions for those that would have make idols. Look at verse 20. He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside. He feedeth on ashes. Eating ashes is utter folly, and so is the worshiper of idols. Foolishness. He feedeth on ashes. And it says, a deceived heart hath turned him aside. You know, the heart is what is deceived in men. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It is deceitful at the beginning. And it's a terrible thing for that heart that is deceitful, once it has any enlightenment whatsoever, to be deceived by foolishness and by other things. Uh, the Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever man... Uh, so with that shall he also reap. And the Bible also speaks of a man that deceiveth himself. That deceiveth himself. I'd a lot rather someone else deceive me than for me to deceive myself. It's bad enough when someone else deceives you. But it says here, for he, uh, it says, uh, neither is there, uh, well, verse 20, uh, a deceived heart hath turned him aside. So this deceived heart turns him aside from worshiping the true God to worshiping idols. That he cannot de- that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He's trying to get deliverance from that which is not, and which will not bring deliverance. Now then, in verses 21, <clears throat> beginning with verse 21, through 28, which is the remainder of the chapter, Isaiah is here confirming the assurance he had given to raise their expectations, and he begins to deal with uh, God's people that are that will certainly be blessed by these things that he speaks of. Now look at verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. You know what? He uses the two words for Israel here, doesn't he, in Jacob. Remember the old Jacob. Jacob was his original name. It meant supplanter. It meant, you know, old Jacob was a deceiver. He was a, a manipulator. Uh, he was a scoundrel. And yet, he was saved by grace. And God gave him something special. And he gave him a new name. And he named him Israel. For as a, as a prince with God. He had power with God. Remember when he was named Israel. And so he uses both these names. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel. For thou art my servant. He says, I have formed thee, thou art my servant. O Israel, thou shalt not 
be forgotten of me. In spite of Jacob's sins. Remember there's a scripture that says that I have not beheld iniquity in Jacob. How has God not beheld iniquity in Jacob? You and I could behold the iniquity, couldn't we? But God in grace, He says here, Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. God is faithful and He will not forget His own. He is faithful and true to His promises that He has made. And He promised Israel uh, the future blessings. And we know that even Christ is of the, of, of the stock of Israel. Going back to Abraham. And the Bible tells us that uh, the promise was made to Abraham and his seed. In thy seed shall all nations or families of the earth be blessed. And you get over in the book of Galatians. And it tells us in 3.16 that he saith not to seeds as of many, but to one, and that is Christ. So that through Christ, and not only of Abraham, but of, of David, of the seed of David according to the flesh. And so here God has given us the same covenant relationship and even greater because he's fulfilled everything that he promised Israel and he's also given us a new covenant relationship through Christ and his shed blood on the cross and therefore we have a relationship with God that he's not going to forget us either. And then in verse 22, notice this. Uh, He says, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. I've blotted them out. It says, if he has erased the debt of our sins from his account book. God says, your sins were heaped up and they filled the ledger. But he says, I've blotted them all out. And he says, I've blotted them out as a thick cloud, thy transgressions, and as a cloud, thy sins. God has covered our sins with the atonement of Christ as well as Israel of old. Of course, we know this basically is speaking to His earthly chosen people, but all of it has its uh, principles and its applications to you and I. So that if God in grace blotted out the sins of Israel and their iniquities and covered their sins, certainly by the blood of Jesus Christ, He has blotted out our sins. And he's hidden our sins as far as the east is from the west. The Bible says, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And he says, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. That's where we stand in the sight of God. You and I are sinners by nature, are we not? And we're sinners by choice. And we have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But once we believe on Christ and trust Him and confess our sins and repent of our sins and turn to God... He puts them under the shed blood of Christ. And and the blood means that He's made atonement. The word means to make a covering for our sins. And so He's covered our sins. And in this 22nd verse, He says, Return unto Me, for I have redeemed thee. What does He want? He wants His people to repent. He wants you and I, as well as Israel of old, to turn back to God. The same principle is involved. When we go away from God... And we do things that are not pleasing to God. God does not forget us. But He does ask us to return because of His faithfulness. Then notice in verse 23. He says, Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains. O forest and every tree therein. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified Himself in Israel. Look at that. Again, the play on these two names. The Lord hath redeemed Jacob. Jacob needed redemption. 
But he's glorified, look, and, and glorified himself in Israel. So he glorifies himself in our new name. You see that? He redeems us from our sins. He purchased us when we had to be bought by blood. And you, after we were purchased, then he tells us what? He says, uh, and glorified himself in Israel as his new creatures and with a new name. He glorifies Himself in our new nature and our new life. You see, there was nothing to be glorified in in the old life. And when we were yet in our sins, when we had our natural name before we were born again and had a new name. But once we have a new name, He glorifies Himself in us in that new name. Now then, let's notice this. <coughs> it says, uh, of course, this verse, we, we haven't finished with it. I want you to get something else from it before I leave it. It says, Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest, and every tree therein. In other words, nature from the heights of heaven to the depths of the earth and everything is to give praise to God. You see, remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem on, on the donkey and there were some that tried to silence the people and Jesus said, if these would hold their peace... Now listen... Even the stones would cry out. Here you have the heavens and the earth and the forest and the mountains and the trees. These things that cannot cry out like you and I can with a voice. But they let everything praise God. And here that's exactly what he's referring to. Now in verse 24, it says, Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. What does he say? He says, He that, thy Redeemer, he that formed thee from the womb, from the very beginning, Israel belonged to God. It's as if before they were born, they belonged to God. Because God had chosen, God chose them and, and, uh, made them a special people of His choice in divine grace before there was ever anything good found in them. You know, He has done that for others. The Bible tells us, we had it this morning on the Apostle Paul, it says, concerning Paul, it says, the Lord that separated me from my mother's womb, that He chose me to reveal His grace in me. Separate me from my mother's womb. In the book of Jeremiah, <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 5, well, let's read verse 4. It says, <clears throat> Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Can you imagine that? Before Jeremiah was conceived. God said, I have a man that's going to be born. He's going to be Jeremiah. And he had already had a relationship with him. He knew he was going to be born. And he says, before I formed thee in the womb, in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Sometimes we do not realize how important a little baby is, do we? In the sight of God. We all had to start out that way. And God has chosen some from the very beginning. He chose the Apostle Paul. Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, but 
God already had a purpose for him way back when he was born. And here with Jeremiah, the same thing. And God has a purpose for you and I as well in life. Remember when Moses was born, they saw that he was a proper child, a goodly child, it says in another place, and a proper child. And every little baby that's born into this world should have an opportunity to be what God wants it or uh, him or her to be. And you and I should, should cherish and value the life of these infants. And that's why it's so wrong for so many to do away with them before they're born. Because God has a purpose for them. Talk about when they, are, when they really have life. When they have life and in their mother's womb and are kicking around, they, they have life and they're a person. And it's very early in that stage of, of, uh, of life too. And the thing I, I want to press upon our minds is that there are so many today that are using abortion uh, as a means of more or less of birth control, which is the most horrible thing that was ever done. And we want to state our feelings about it and convictions about it and tell these young people to be sure and take care of yourself and your families. And if you have find a young lady that is going to have a baby, you, you bring that baby into the world regardless of the circumstances. I'd much rather the circumstances be what they ought to be than what they ought not to be. But on the other hand, that baby is important. And we find in verse 25 now, well, verse 24, let's not forget that as we read he says, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. You see, God didn't have to have any human help when He made the heavens and the earth. The Bible says that the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And listen, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, God spoke, and things began to happen. We find now in this modern day they're talking about all kinds of theories and they've been through the centuries of creation and how the creation happened to be. We have the heavens and the galaxies beyond our galaxy and they say there are hundreds and thousands beyond that and we can hardly understand this little speck of sphere that we have to do with and yet there are people that say it all just happened by an explosion that they had a little ball or something there that got on fire and it exploded and the earth flopped over here and Mars and Venus and the other planets jumped up there and the sun and the moon and the stars. Where did all this come from? It came from God. And the Bible says, By faith we understand that what? The worlds were framed by the Word of God so that the things which are made were not made of things which do appear so that they were made out of nothing. If there had been something there, if that little ball had been there that exploded, where did it come from? Where did it get its existence? There had to be someone behind it. And the very fact that you have anything in life. We have a pulpit here. We have a piano there. But behind that piano, the reason it's there is that someone had an idea of how to put it together and what it took to make it and assemble it. And if they, there's no one that ever had an idea of how to put it together and what it needed there, it wouldn't be there. And this earth would not be here unless 
God Himself had thought it up and had purposed it and planned it and created it. You say, well, where did God come from? I don't know. And that's the old atheistic view of most uh, people today. Well, where did God come from? I don't have to know where God came from. The Bible says, in the beginning, God. That's as far back as I want to go. That's far enough back for me. You want to go any further, you talk to Him. In the beginning, God. And it says, in the beginning, God created. He was active. So, anyway, back to this. Look at verse 25 now. It says, that frustrateth the tokens of the liars and maketh diviners mad. He sends confusion, doesn't he? He frustrates the tokens of the liars and maketh diviners mad that turneth wise men backward and maketh their knowledge foolish. You see, when we stand up against the Lord, we find out we're not so smart after all, are we? It says, who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who is so wise as to instruct God? He's the one that instructs us. And he frustrates the tokens of the liars and makes diviners, those that think they know about the future, mad. That turneth wise men backward. If they think they're wise, he can turn that wisdom backwards and maketh their knowledge foolish. Have you ever thought about how much you've learned in life and you've learned a few things? And then have you ever thought about how little and how small that amount of knowledge is in the sight of God? It's so little that it's hardly anything. It's like a grain of sand upon the shores of the the beach, the seashore. Our knowledge is just like a little grain of sand, and we think we've learned a lot. We say, well, we have people up there in outer space, and we do this and we do that, and they send a man to the moon and all this deal about Mars. That's fine. But you see, when you weigh that against God's knowledge, it's just a speck. It's just a speck. And it's great for what people do. Because God gives us in, uh, the ability to develop things and uh, to learn things. And we, we can be thankful for them. If we'll learn to give God thanks for what we do know and what we have achieved and what He's permitted us to understand of His creation and scientific developments and, and the things that we have, the vaccines that heal some and keep us from getting certain diseases and various other things. If we'll learn to appreciate that and realize that God had it in His mind and in His power all the while, and we finally discovered a little bit of it to help us out, then we'll learn to appreciate it. But let's not think that we're so smart that it just came from ourselves. I remember one time up in Albuquerque, there was a, my dad was in the veterans hospital up there. In fact, he didn't make it. He died at the age of 59. But he was in the veterans hospital, and we I had to stay in Albuquerque in a motel for about a month because he was on his deathbed. But to make a long story short, there was a man in there that was going to surgery, and as I'd go visit Dad, well, I'd go in there and I'd talk to this man in the lobby there, and he's fixing to have surgery, and I tried to tell him the Lord would bring him through this if he and you know pray for him and so on. He didn't want me to pray for him, and he didn't want. Uh, give God any credit. He says, if I get through this uh, this uh, surgery, it'll be all because of scientific uh, uh, abilities and progress that's brought me through it. And I said, you, you mean you don't think God will have anything to do with it? No, he says, it'll all be there. Well, 
I'm thankful the Lord was merciful to him because, you know, with that attitude, I'd be afraid to go into surgery, wouldn't you? I'd a whole lot rather go into surgery saying, God, I want you to bring me through it. And I want you to use all these things that men have and the doctors and nurses guide their hands and their minds and their hearts and and help them to do the very best job they can do. And at the same time, I want you to be in control of everything. Of everything. Then in verse 26, "...that confirmeth the word of His servant and performeth the counsel of His messengers." Confirmation to the oracles of God. God confirms the word of His servant because the word of His servant is the word that God gives that servant to speak. And God will stand behind His word. You know, that's why when we preach the Bible and we preach the word, we don't have to make any apologies for it because it's what God says, it's not what we say. Now, the Bible does teach us that we are to expound it and rightly divide the word of truth. And the Bible does say, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's our responsibility to try to understand it. And it's also our responsibility to expound it. But it's God's confirmation of the word. It says that confirmeth the word of his servant and performeth the counsel of his messengers. He performs the counsel of his messengers. That saith to Jerusalem, thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah ye shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. God had given a message, and by the way we come to a point in this chapter where we find that he had chosen a man by the name of Cyrus to have this to be done, and you read of it in the book of Ezra, but we'll read on down and we'll, we'll uh, talk about that in just a moment. Thou shalt be inhabited to the cities of Judah, ye shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. That saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyprus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. God had spoken to Cyrus in the book of Ezra. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord uh, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, you know, put it in writing. If God says put it in writing, let's put it in writing. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to, to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And we could go on and on about what Ezra says about it. But let's get back to God's choice of Cyrus to do this work that is spoken of in the book of Ezra as well as in other places here in Isaiah. But notice verse 27 again. How is this going to be inhabited? That How is this going to be performed that Jerusalem shall be in, inhabited and the cities of Judah as in verse 26? Now how is it going to take place? Verse 27 says, That saith to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. <clears throat> when it says, dry up thy rivers, according to two that we read of, Herodotus and Enophon, 
the Persians diverted a channel which flowed beneath the walls of Babylon, and they diverted this channel, enabling them to penetrate the whole city, the, the great walled city, on a dry riverbed by diverting the water that flowed through. And so God is able to take men and do things for His people in a way that is uh, engineered and very spectacular. And he, we're told that that's what happened. But in verse 28, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And for Israel of old, and when this happened, as far as their Babylonian captivity and his deliverance of them from captivity and the performance of all these things, it says, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. And by the way, he is a type of Christ. And through him alone, all the uh, promises of God and the things of the nation, both uh, then and in the hereafter, and in the future, I should say, will be performed as through Christ that all the promises will come. Well, we finish the uh, 44th chapter. We'll pick up with chapter 45 in our next lesson. This next chapter is a wonderful chapter. Be sure and be here, and we'll try to get a lesson from that.